Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. What's up, guys? Welcome to Oxano. My name is Jacob, and I have the privilege of being the minister to young adults, and it is my privilege uh, to be continuing this series tonight in the seven signs in the Gospel of John. Uh, As you guys know, uh, just from a a calendaring standpoint here, we had to cancel our first week, uh, and so uh, this this would have kind of thrown off our whole preaching schedule for the semester. So what we're going to do tonight is condense two stories, uh, the, the second and the third sign that Jesus performed into one message. So we got kind of a lot of ground to cover tonight. Uh, So we won't reread that passage, uh, but we certainly will cover it. Then we'll go on to the next one. Uh, As you guys will see, these, these passages have a lot of similarities to each other but then also some distinct differences that that we will cover. Uh, But since both of them are stories of Jesus healing, um, I have a little bit of a pro tip to offer you guys onto that. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, you, know, you might have come here with a group of friends tonight, uh, and you definitely have friends that are outside of here. But you know, if, you're, if you're putting any kind of deliberate uh, thought into how you are crafting your friend group, uh, a, a pro tip that I would offer to you as, as someone uh, you know, at my age is get someone in your friend group who uh, has aspirations for medical school. Uh, get someone uh, who is pre-med. Uh, I'll I tell you why, because once they graduate, you can, uh, you can use what I use, which is friend telehealth, okay? Um, anytime I'm sick, um, I, I don't want to wait for three months to try and get in with a doctor, get referred to another specialist, go through the whole process there, right? Or uh, maybe I just like want a prescription written and don't want to don't have to go through having to get an appointment again, right? Um, and so I call my buddy up. And, uh, you know, he, he always kind of walks me through, like, yeah, this is, this is what you need. I got, I'll take care of you. Um, and so find that person in your life. Uh, one time I called him and uh, y'all, you know, I started telling him my symptoms. I was like, look, uh, my neck is swollen up like I'm on a roid cycle right now. And, um, you know, I am like losing weight. I'm fatigued all the time, lost my appetite. Like, what is going on? And um, I was engaged at the time, so he's kind of connecting some dots. He was like, uh, so um, that's the Epstein-Barr virus. Jacob, you've got mono. I was like, oh, man. And uh, he's like, yeah. So, so I was like, well, you know, wh- what do I take for that? You know, like, uh, how, how do I, you know, get rid of this? You know, I'm trying to get past this. You know, I've got things to do. And um, he's like, yeah, you know, um, you gotta, you, you can't um, play contact sports, which seemed like a weird thing. Um, apparently, your spleen is is uh, inflamed, as well as your lymph nodes and your neck. And uh, he said, drink lots of, of fluids. And he's like, look, he's, I know it's rough. You just got to get through it. Uh, it'll run its course. You know, I had it one time in college. I caught it from one of my Tinderellas, and I was like. I immediately went back to college and, you know, was, was thinking about Michael was, he, oh gosh, I just said his name. Um, <laughs> he, he was one of my roommates and uh, y'all, he had this issue of like, he would just serially date 
Like he was out of control with the swiping on Tinder. Like just right all the time and um, dated a lot of people. And it was just kind of like, Michael, you know, like you might find the right person if you just kind of give, you know, one relationship a little more time, kind of see it through. Um, but that was really not his style. You know, he was kind of interested in the field more so, right? And, uh, you know, instead of like sitting him down and confronting him about this, you know, uh, we decided it would be a lot better idea that those of us, the, the other people in the friend group, decided it'd be a better idea to create a fake profile on Tinder and catfish him. And so, I mean, played right into our hand and um, had this long conversation with Michael and we're like, man, what, what are we gonna do with this? And, and, and in the waiting there, started matching with all these other guys in our fraternity. We're like, oh man, this is getting good. You know, like we, we had like this, you know, kind of diabolical plan of like, we're gonna one chapter meeting just like post all the screenshots, you know, and, and everybody like get to go through it and make fun of everybody. We decided that was a really bad idea. Um, would probably give us a bad name as Christians in the fraternity. Um, and so uh, we decided instead to just set them all up on dates with each other. And so they like would show up to this place and they're expecting, you know, this, this uh, person that was way out of their league uh, to, to be waiting there for them. And it's like another guy's like, what are you doing here? You know, and so... Um, I, I tell you guys that, that story because, um, you know, I'm, I'm not speaking against dating apps, okay? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, I, I realize it is 2024, and that is a, a way that people meet each other and how a lot of relationships start. Uh, but I will tell you is that you've got to be careful on there, and you need to authenticate that you are talking to a real person and not getting catfished like my friend, right? So um, with that, we'll, we'll dive into our text here. The seven signs uh, and that we just read from, uh, they accompany Jesus' ministry and teaching to authenticate that he is who he says he is. Y'all weren't expecting that application from that story, were you? Um, that that Jesus' ministry and teaching um, is authenticated by the, si- the seven signs. Actually, that word uh, in the Greek means to authenticate or to, uh, to prove to be true. So Jesus is putting the world on notice about his identity as the anointed one by showing what he's capable of doing outside of what is thought to be possible within natural limitations. The signs are the burden of proof that there is something outstandingly extraordinary about Jesus. Something outstandingly extraordinary about him. Right, that, that Jesus is a great moral teacher. That Jesus is, is teaching these things about the law that, that no one ever has before. He teaches with such authority, right? But accompanying that, we have these incredible acts of compassion. We have these miraculous works like Cole preached last week about and the, the turning the water into wine, Right? And, and we will explore all of these different incredible signs and wonders that Jesus does through the seven signs. Those of you who have participated in church at any discipleship level, and you've been a part of the meeting when uh, prayer requests start coming up, right? You know that the, the primary, I mean, the, what is taking up most of the airtime of the prayer request time are petitions and requests about sick loved ones, right? Um, if you were to, to be a part of our, um, 
you know, a pastoral care email that goes out. You see all the people who um, are sick and in hospitals. And um, certainly, like, those, those deserve to uh, come to the forefront, right? Because, because people are uh, in a um, dire situation, right? And we know that, that because of the fall that we read about in Genesis, that the curses of disease and sickness are avenues of immense human suffering, that biblically they serve as an externalized symbol of our spiritual condition and an acute source of our despair. So I imagine that even presently, uh, those of you who are in the room, that we can think of loved ones in critical care on our prayer list, petitioning that God would save them. All right, maybe that is, a, is, is how you spend your 20 sec- 120 seconds later tonight, is praying for a loved one who is desperately sick. In our text tonight, we're gonna take a look at two people who are in desperation. They have that in common. As I mentioned, there are some differences, but these, these stories cover contrasting extremes of society. That the two people that I'm gonna talk about are definitely not living in the same zip code, and they're definitely not in the same tax bracket. That sickness and disease makes no discrimination based off of how much wealth and privilege you have. Makes no discrimination uh, around um, what good or bad things that you have done, right? There, there is this kind of mindset of retribution theology that the, that the uh, Jewish leaders have around sickness, right? And we'll kind of address that at some point later. But um, everyone, no one is exempt from the suffering of sickness and disease. The first that we're gonna talk about, we just read about, is an influential father who despite all of his access and his wealth, it says that he was, in a, ro- he was a royal official, right? That, that he belonged to the regime of Herod Antipas. Despite all of that, he cannot cure his son's fever. The other is a handicapped vagrant man who is resigned to waiting in a bathhouse for nearly 40 years to be supernaturally healed. See, life and death situations are the source of a lot of deals that we try to strike with God. All right, maybe, maybe you've, you've prayed a prayer like this before. God, if you will just heal my loved one. Now, if you would just heal my grandmother, grandfather, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister then I will serve you for the rest of my life, right? Those of us who have a mature view of prayer know that that's, that's, that's not how we approach God in prayer, right? But, but undoubtedly is a place that we go to. And we see that this father in the story is this level of desperate, maybe beyond, even beyond that, that he is singularly focused on resolving the completely unconsciousable reality that his son might die. If God take me instead, right? If God be, the thoughts have gotta be racing through his head. And we, we, we don't, we can't even fathom, most of us in the room can't even fathom the depths of the love of a father who's trying to alleviate the suffering of their son, much less the thought that they might lose them. The situation gets so dire that he knows that he's in need of some divine intervention. 
He has very little regard for who he is asking this request of. Uh, as I mentioned, this is, this is someone who is a part of the royal regime. So he is, he is looking for someone who can help him. He's only able at this point to conceptualize what Jesus could potentially do for his son. And as we read in verse 46, that um, the, the, the word had gotten out about what Jesus had done in Cana. So we see that he's looking for him because Jesus might be able to do something for his son. And so as a result, this man of royalty in Capernaum ascends uphill to Cana. So this is um, Cana, or Capernaum sits 700 feet below sea level. This is very much an uphill hike, about a six or seven hour hike. Um, and, and, and maybe uh, this father is, is uh, going even faster than that, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, for those of you who are on Strava, uh, this guy is, is hitting his Strava goals, trying, looking for Jesus, right? Uh, elevation gain uh, and, and trying, to, trying to make the best time that he can to get to him. So this gives us a glimpse at his level of desperation. And though it would suffice to say that only a father knows the links that he would go to if his child was suffering. I imagine that if Jesus were standing on top of Mount Everest, this father would be doing everything that he could to get to him. Right, if he knew that this could heal him, there's no links that he wouldn't go to. You know, we know of people of means in, in our day and age who will travel for uh, world-class healthcare, right? Uh, we, we know people going to the Mayo Clinic or to Mass Gen at, at Harvard. Um, in the ancient days, this, this would have been a really equivalent gesture in a lot of ways, right? That this father is using everything at his disposal in his desperation to find a cure for his son. So as we read, the father begged Jesus to come because his son was on death's doorstep and Jesus might be the last one who could save him. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't lament the condition of the son like he will later with the man in the bathhouse. But he laments the condition of the father and the Galileans that are gathered in this, in this story. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, uh, syntactically, uh, the, the you there is plural. Uh, some translations may say, unless you people see signs and wonders, you people won't believe. Uh, I, I like, I prefer the translation of unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe because we're in Birmingham, Alabama, right? So what we know, people who've been trained in pastoral care, people who um, you know, have some sense of, of what it's like to care for people in desperate situations, we can perceive that, that Jesus' rebuke here might be a little bit ill-timed, right? That, that Jesus uses this moment to express some holy discontent about our human penchant for needing to see something in order for us to believe it to be true. Right? That, that, that Jesus has this kind of sidebar comment about seeing and believing, we're gonna to continue to unpack that tonight. And, and to be fair, I think that there's wisdom and prudence that is found in, in, in verifying the miraculous and supernatural when we hear about it, right? So un undoubtedly, we are aware of these miraculous accounts that maybe even still happen 
in this day. The problem with undergoing this exercise here is that these are not the, man, the words of a man who is subject to our scrutiny, right? But, but these are the very words of God. And so the unsaid and the assumed frustration of Jesus is something like, if you only knew how good and glorious and powerful the person that you're making this request of is, you wouldn't have a problem believing that I could do this or anything that you asked of me. Right? This father doesn't have a full grasp of how brilliant Jesus is. Father kind of speeds right past this comment that Jesus makes and he persists unfazed by Jesus' rebukes. Has Jesus come down to Capernaum with me? Jesus responds with this. He says, go, your son is living. Jesus doesn't prescribe a miracle drug. He doesn't refer him to some surgical specialist. He heals just with his word. That even from this six to seven hour distance away, Jesus knows that the son has been healed at his word. So what we'll see tonight, first off, is that faith based solely on signs and wonders is inadequate. You know, there are many word of faith movements um, and, and uh, kind of sects of Christianity, uh, you know, in, even in our culture, uh, especially in, in different uh, global contexts, where the reliance on supernatural signs and wonders is sort of the bedrock and foundation of faith, right? And in the act of performing one, Jesus seems to caution everyone on this practice, Right, that, that knowing what he is about to do, you can sense Jesus' trepidation about doing it. Right, of like, what, what, what am I gonna start here? And, and, and why would that be? I think, I, I believe this is why. Because so much of the Christian faith rests on the belief and hope in what is unseen. Mature faith is expressed by fully trusting Jesus at his word about everything that he says. That Jesus calls us to trust him at his word about everything he says. That yes, these signs are here to authenticate his power and authority and dominion over creation. But for us, for believers at this time, Jesus wants us to trust him at his word that his testimony is true. I don't know if you guys have thought about this before, but Jesus is quite literally the expert on everything there is to know. He is the expert on everything there is to know. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard asks this question. He says, do we esteem Jesus as the smartest man who ever lived? We in church on a Tuesday night might have no issue thinking about the Son of God as the greatest spiritual and moral teacher to ever live. But do we ever stop to ponder how brilliant he is? Hebrews 1.3 tells us, he upholds the universe by the word 
of his power. So I did a Google search for smartest people to ever live. Jesus doesn't even come up in the top 50, right? And what I will tell you, as for Sir Isaac Newton or Socrates or Marie Curie or Albert Einstein, their whole life's work and legacy was dedicated to scratching the surface of understanding of what Jesus designed, spoke into existence out of nothing, superintends and upholds as we speak. From the dawn of time until the end of it. Right, that this Jesus that we read about in this story is the one who created it all. He is beyond smart, all right? He is beyond our comprehension. And so my question to you in light of that is what are your thoughts about Christ's words? If they're puny, my prayer tonight is that they would be enlarged. If they are fragmented, my hope and prayer for you tonight is that they would become whole. And if they are thoughts of unbelief, thoughts of doubt, I pray that tonight you would trust Jesus at his word, that his invitation to you is to believe, just like the people in this story. In fact, this is exactly how this story concludes. It tells of a much greater blessing than the father's son being healed, which is a remarkable miracle in its own, right? That, that, that Jesus is due all the adulation and the praise and the glory for saving this child's life. But the far greater blessing that we read at the end of this passage is that the royal official and all of his household believed that they are now walking in spiritual life. Right, that out of the circumstances of this situation and Jesus showing his glory to them, that they might now know and believe and trust in the author of life, their savior, the Messiah who has come to bring them spiritual life, eternal life. Now as we tr transition into our next story tonight, you know, healing the, the son of a royal official probably made Jesus a lot of friends in high places, right? But that was a, a good PR move for Jesus, right? But what about the down and out? What about the overlooked, the oppressed, the problematic, sick and ailing people? Do you think that there's mass appeal for Jesus going to heal those people? Resoundingly, no. So we'll dive into what Jesus does next in his next sign. So if you've got your Bibles open, open with me to John chapter five, verses one through seven. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there's in Jerusalem by the sheep, by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida 
which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. It's a place of immense suffering. This is probably a really uncomfortable place to go to, I would, I would venture to say. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Pay close attention to this in verse six. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So this desperate cripple man has bet his lot on superstitious religion. Understandingly, the healthcare system at the time has completely failed this guy. The angels that he is hoping will come and stir the waters have not come. I venture to say in the midst of his years as a crippled heap in this bathhouse, he's been figuratively and literally pushed to the side. He's been deprived not only of healing, but basic human decency. But Jesus sees him. He says he knows how long he has been there. Y'all, Jesus is so smart. But coupled with that, he has more compassion than we can even fathom. Jesus has more of a sense for justice than we can ever appreciate. It does seem like in these dialogues that, that those who are seeking healing from Jesus are kind of talking past him. And, and maybe at first glance too, it might seem like Jesus has kind of poor bedside manner, right? But that Jesus knows what he is capable of. For this man, I think that he talks past Jesus partially because of his suffering and his desperation to get well. To pay real close attention to this, y'all, that the blinders of his circumstances, his resignation with his condition, or his entrenched blame and cynicism on other people for failing to get well again and again causes him to underestimate who is standing before him. Do we see ourselves at all in that description? God doesn't see me. He doesn't see what I'm going through. He doesn't know what I'm insecure about. He doesn't know the pain and the trauma of my past. He doesn't know how I've been burned over and over again in relationships. Right, that we can get to a really dark place like I imagine that this man has gotten to. And like I asked us earlier about Jesus's intelligence, are we, are we guilty of underestimating the author and the sustainer of life? Are we naive about the power, authority, intellect, and brilliance of Jesus when he has already demonstrated his glory? In this case, he's standing right before the man. And the man can only talk about the stirring of the waters. That's, that's all he can see as his, his ticket out. That maybe Jesus would take him over to the pool when the waters started to be stirred. Yes, he is desperate for healing, but he's looking in the wrong place. 
when the one who has the ability and the authority to heal him is standing right in front of him. And he's asking him this interesting question, almost absurd to us. Do you desire to be healed? Like, do you actually want to be healed? Seems like an odd question to ask, but, but I, I would say belief takes agency and ownership on, on our part to some extent, right? That, that, that Jesus is the one standing before him, that Jesus is the one who has the ability to do it, but he's asking him, do you, do you want this, right? You wanna receive this? Not that it's anything that, that we could do or we could earn, right? But, th- but there, there has to be some degree of, of agency and ownership on our part, just like this man. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Pay close attention there to what, what Jesus commands him to do. He doesn't say, you're healed, right? He gives a specific command here. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. See, there are recordings of Jesus healing on the Sabbath in all four of the gospel accounts. It's a favorite pastime of Jesus to upset the socio-legal order of the Jews, right? And, and, and why do you think that is, right? And, and, and reading this story just now, right, you see that we have this man who has been crippled for nearly 40 years walking around and carrying his bed where he undoubtedly stayed slumped on for all of that time. And we, we begin to get a grasp for the righteous indignation of Jesus toward the absolutely just corrupt and terrible religious legal structure of Israel at this time, right? That picking up your bed and carrying it around is considered work. And that would have been a violation of the Sabbath. And violation of the Sabbath is punishable by death. Now this man who was basically as good as dead laying there, Jesus gives him new life and immediately the Jewish leadership is is wanting to potentially punish this man to death, undoing the work of God, right? That these people are a hindrance to the work that God is trying to do, right? That they are trying to snuff out and, and cover up the work that God is doing. And so when we went through our Woes to the Pharisees series uh, earlier last semester, you guys understand the, the, how justifiable Jesus' indignation toward the religious leadership is. 
We see that, that Jesus heals this man, but his faith has not yet saved him. When he gets questioned about his crime, the best articulation of who healed him was the man who made me well. We see that, that Jesus finds him in the temple, which is a good place for him to be after he's learned to now walk around. He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, my, my best inference as to why Jesus is rebuking what this man is doing is that he's probably maintained his very irritable nature uh, that, that he accumulated uh, over time, uh, being in this place, looking to be healed, right? That, that he is obviously, uh, you know, not trying to be conspicuous about the fact uh, that, you know, he is outing Jesus and shifting blame to the religious leadership, right? And this is getting Jesus in hot water with them. That he's, you know, kind of ratted Jesus out to the Sabbath-breaking police. Or, you know, as some commentators have said, that, that this man could have had something else going on uh, in his life spiritually, and he knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, right? And so Jesus calls him to a deeper devotion to him, right? That, that the physical healing was not enough, that this man also needed spiritual healing, as for Jesus' interaction with the Jewish leadership, Jesus justified his healing on the Sabbath to the Jewish leaders by making a much more explosive claim. This claim authenticates his messianic identity. That as the Father works on the Sabbath to uphold creation and execute his superintendence over life, so also the Son is working that the Sabbath was instituted for finite human beings like me today who needed a nap in, in the mid-afternoon until Cole called me and woke me up. Um, but the, the Sabbath is instituted for people um, with limitations like us, all of us in this room, right? That, that God gave that as a gift to us to rest and recover. But the, because Jesus was God, he's not bound to that. Right, that, that, that God is always working. That God is infinite and omnipotent. He's always working on our behalf and he can sustain that level of activity for us. And so as the father is always working, so is the son. And y'all, if y'all thought that the Jewish leaders were upset about this guy who had not walked before and was now walking and carrying around his bed on the Sabbath, can you imagine how enraged that they would have gotten at this claim that Jesus makes? That he and the Father are one. That he and the Father are on the same page, right? Yesterday, I was teaching on the biblical theme of blessing and curse at uh, the UAB uh, medical school to a room full of future doctors because uh, I'm you know, looking to build my network of people that I can call on uh, to avoid going to the doctor's office. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we do something called Christian Medical Fellowship and um, you know, we are, are walking through uh, the Bible Project themes of, of blessing and curse. And uh, I, I shared with them that I would share, be sharing with you all tonight about the seven signs of Jesus and how four of the seven signs involve physical bodily healing, right? That Jesus 
devoted a lot of his earthly ministry to healing the sick, right? And, and those of you who uh, are either studying or actively working in health professions, I just you know, want to affirm you in the work that you're doing. This is something that Jesus also devoted his time and energy and effort to. And, and physical health and human flourishing are synonymous with God's blessing and grace to everyone through you. So where does that leave the rest of us, right? Those, those of us um, like me, um, I'm very squeamish around blood or open wounds. Um, you know, obviously I don't wanna be around sick people with, with, uh, who have mono or any type of contagious uh, disease, right? I don't wanna catch that, right? Um, and so uh, God did not call me into healthcare uh, or you know, ministering to people in that way. But from you know, a, a spiritual standpoint, right, um, that this is all a reality that we have to address of spiritual sickness, right, um, that, that all of us came in here tonight maimed in some way, we came in here broken, unable to fix our deepest problems, that, that all of us, whether we like to, care to admit it or not, are in spiritual sickness and desperation. Maybe for some of you it is a mental health struggle, Maybe you are riddled with doubt, right? And, and maybe your thought is something like this, like if I could be there and I could witness these stories in real time, that I wouldn't have any problem in believing in Jesus or his word, right? And to that I would say his closest disciples were there and yet they still abandoned him. Their belief was still shaken that they were eyewitnesses to all of these miracles and yet they didn't believe in the end. So I think of this verse in 1 Peter 1, verses eight through nine. Peter, the one who ultimately denied Jesus three times, is now writing this epistle later, says to the church, says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now that you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Last night, I was on the, the phone with a friend who um, is, is, is coming out on the other end of um, some, some real deep struggles in his faith and some doubts that he had, some life circumstances that were really tough. And He's also probably one of the most intelligent people that I know, right? I was giving him a rundown of my sermon and, and he says to me, kind of interrupts and says, you know, Jacob, I think my faith in Jesus is stronger because I've chosen to believe despite my doubts. My faith is stronger because I've chosen to believe despite all of my doubts. You know, this is how Jesus designed our physical immune system to work. And I believe there's something to be said about our resiliency and faith too. Right? That it is made stronger by exposure. It is made stronger by our encounter with the sickness. And to build antibodies to disbelief, you get a dose of adversity. You're given an inquisitive mind to challenge and then you choose to trust Jesus at his word. 
right there, as scripture testifies to that the testing, the tested endurance of our faith, right? Um, and that, that, that we can build endurance through the trials and testing that we experience. And so this verse from 1 Peter paraphrased echoes with Jesus' earlier rebuke of y'all will not believe unless you see. But this is an admonition. It says that you do not see now, but you believe. You do not see now, but you believe. And I pray that that would be true for us tonight. And like my friend, that though your faith has been tested, sometimes maybe even shaken, that you would hold fast to every word from your Savior. That you'd learn from him on how to walk in new spiritual life like the household of the royal official. That though you may be crippled and lame in the corner, that when Jesus calls you out of your unbelief, that you would stand up, pick up your bed, and walk. Let's pray. Father, I, I lift up myself and my friends in the room tonight, God, as we look at the incredible stories, God, of, of how you have healed Lord, that we know that, that we came in tonight crippled, that we came in with bandages over our wounds, God, that we are hemorrhaging in some way. And God, in the midst of our bleeding, God, you remind us that you too bled on our behalf. God, that you were esteemed stricken and a man of sorrows, cursed, God, it is by your stripes that we are healed. So Father, I pray that we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, that we would boldly and confidently run the race that is before us. Father, I lift up those tonight who feel that they are in need of healing. God, that you would call out to them by your death-defying power to get up and to follow after you. Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.